Welcome to the Lexington Public Library's Tales from the Kentucky Room podcast, where we discuss everything Lexington and Fayette County history. I'm Miriam, and in each episode of this podcast, we will feature a guest that will share a piece of local history. So thank you for tuning in and enjoy. In 1842, Charles Dickens, author of notable works like David Copperfield, A Christmas Carol, and Oliver Twist, sailed the steamship Britannia to America. He wanted to tour the U.S. and, in fact, made his way to several states, including Kentucky. Today, my guest is David Bryant, librarian at Central Library, to give us the details of that trip. Hi, David. Thank you for joining us for the podcast. Hi, Miriam. Hey. So how did you come about the story of Charles Dickens' visit? Not many people know about this information, that he actually made his way down to Kentucky. Well, the last time I did this podcast, Mm -hmm. we talked about Lafayette's visit Uh to Lexington in 1825. So I started thinking about possible other historical figures who may have traveled through Kentucky at some point. And I discovered that Charles Dickens made a stop in Louisville on his his tour to America in 1842. So what was his motivation for coming and what brought him to Kentucky? Well, I think primarily it was to promote his work Mm -hmm. in America, but he also had another motive as well. He was trying to lobby for international copyright. At the time, between America and England, there wasn't, they didn't recognize copyright. And Dickens, he was very popular at the time. He had already written Pickwick Papers and Oliver Twist, but there was a lot of piracy of his works and they would be sold in the United States for just pennies a copy. So Mm -hmm. I think that he really wanted to try to come here and visit with influential authors, politicians, and try to lobby for copyright. Oh, okay. So people are literally stealing his work. And so who who did he meet with? Do you know here in Kentucky? Um, Yeah, he met with a lot of people. Some of the people he met with included authors and politicians like Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, Washington Irving, Edgar Allan Poe, and also President John Tyler. He also met with Henry Clay, and he described Henry Clay in one of his letters to his editor. One of the most agreeable and fascinating men I ever saw. He is tall and slim, with long, limp gray hair, a good head, refined features, a bright eye, a good voice, and a manner more frank and captivating than I ever saw in any man at all advanced in life. I was perfectly charmed with him. So you said that he did enjoy pretty much the same popularity that he did in England. Did he have a fan base? Yeah, he was very popular. I could do nothing that I want to do, go nowhere I want to go, and see nothing I want to see. If I turn into the street, I am followed by a multitude. This trip was documented by him in his writings. What can we glean from his time spent in the U.S.? So his his thoughts on America. Dickens was hoping to see a, a country that had righted a lot of the wrongs of the old world and that was more democratic and egalitarian. And... From American Notes, we get a really strong sense that he did not have this experience. (laughs) Um, um, He was disappointed, especially concerning slavery. He comments on slavery, and he also makes a lot of comments about Americans' table manners and also living conditions. The arrangements of the boat were like those of the messenger, and the passengers were the same order of people. We fed at the same times on the same kind of viands, in the same dull manner and with the same observances. The company appeared to be oppressed by the same tremendous concealments and had as little capacity of enjoyment or lightheartedness. 
I never in my life did see such listless, heavy dullness as brooded over these meals. The very recollection of it weighs me down and makes me for the moment wretched. Reading and writing on my knee in our little cabin, I really dreaded the coming of the hour that summoned us to table and was as glad to escape from it again as if it had been a penance or a punishment. Healthy cheerfulness and good spirits forming a part of the banquet, I could soak my crust in the fountain with Lesage's strolling player and revel in their glad enjoyment. But sitting down with so many fellow animals to ward off thirst and hunger is a business to empty each creature his yahoo's troth as quickly as he can and then slink sullenly away. To have these social sacraments stripped of everything but the mere greedy satisfaction of the natural cravings goes so against the grain with me that I seriously believe the recollection of these funeral feasts will be a waking nightmare to me all my life. So he didn't really have a high point of view, I guess you can say, of, of, yeah, of people was, here. It, it was pretty clear he didn't have a high. He wasn't really satisfied with, with what he saw. Yeah. As Washington may be called the headquarters of tobacco tinctious saliva, the time has come when I must confess, without any disguise, that the prevalence of those two odious practices of chewing and expectorating began about this time to be anything but agreeable, and soon became most offensive and sickening. In all the public places of America, this filthy custom is recognized. In the courts of law, the judge has his platoon, the crier his, the witness his, and the prisoner his while the jurymen and spectators are provided for, as so many men who in the course of nature must desire to spit incessantly. In the hospitals, the students of medicine are requested by notices upon the wall to eject their tobacco juice into the boxes provided for that purpose and not to discolor the stairs. In public buildings, visitors are employed through the same agency to squirt the essence of their quids, or plugs, as I have heard them called by gentlemen learned in this kind of sweetmeat, into the national spittoons, and not about the bases of the marble columns. But in some parts, this custom is inseparably mixed up with every meal and morning call and with all the transactions of social life. The stranger who follows in the track I took myself will find it in its full bloom and glory, luxuriant in all its alarming recklessness at Washington. And let him not persuade himself, as I once did to my shame, that previous tourists have exaggerated its extent. The thing itself is an exaggeration of nastiness which cannot be undone including, of course, at the time, slavery uh, and the politics. Yes, he, he traveled as far south as Richmond, Virginia, and he observed American slavery, and he was horrified by what he saw, and he actually canceled his additional stops south and went back and just continued westward on towards Cincinnati and Louisville and St. Louis. He met an American Indian gentleman. Yes, and he, he goes into detail about his encounter on the on the steamboat with the Choctaw, Choctaw. chief. Okay. Chapter the fourth, from Cincinnati to Louisville in another western steamboat, and from Louisville to St. Louis in another. Leaving Cincinnati at 11 o'clock in the forenoon, we embarked for Louisville in the Pike steamboat, which, carrying the mails, was a packet of a much better class than that in which we had come from Pittsburgh. As this passage does not occupy more than 12 or 13 hours, we arranged to go ashore that night, not coveting the distinction of sleeping in a stateroom when it was possible to sleep anywhere else. There chanced to be on board this boat, in addition to the usual dreary crowd of passengers, one Pitchlin, a chief of the Choctaw tribe of Indians who sent in his card to me and with whom I had the pleasure of a long conversation. He spoke English perfectly well, though he had not begun to learn the language, he told me, until he was a young man grown. He had read many books. 
and Scott's poetry appear to have left a strong impression on his mind, especially the opening of The Lady of the Lake and the great battle scene in Marmion, in which, no doubt from the congeniality of the subjects to his own pursuits and tastes, he had great interest and delight. He appeared to understand correctly all that he had read, and whatever fiction had enlisted his sympathy in its belief had done so so keenly and earnestly. I might almost say fiercely. He was dressed in our ordinary everyday costume, which hung about his fine figure loosely and with indifferent grace. On my telling him I had regretted not seeing him in his own attire, he threw up his right arm for a moment, as though he were brandishing some heavy weapon, and answered, as he let it fall again, that his race were losing many things beside their dress, and would soon be seen upon the earth no more. But he wore it at home, he added proudly. He told me that he had been away from his home west of the Mississippi 17 months and was now returning. He had been chiefly in Washington on some negotiations pending between his tribe and the government, which were not settled yet, he said in a melancholy way, and he feared never would be. But what could a few poor Indians do against such well-skilled men of business as the whites? He had no love for Washington, tired of towns and cities very soon, and longed for the forest and the prairie. I asked him what he thought of Congress. He answered with a smile that it wanted dignity in an Indian's eyes. He would very much like, he said, to see England before he died, and spoke with much interest about the great things to be seen there. When I told him of that chamber in the British Museum wherein there are preserved household memorials of a race that ceased to be thousands of years ago, he was very attentive, and it was not hard to see that he had a reference in his mind to the gradual fading away of his own people. This led us to speak of Mr. Gatlin's gallery, which he praised highly, observing that his own portrait was among the collection and that all the likenesses were elegant. Mr. Cooper, he said, had painted the red man well, and so would I, he knew, if I would go home with him and hunt buffaloes, which he was quite anxious I should do. When I told him that supposing I went, I should not be very likely to damage the buffaloes much, he took it as a great joke and laughed heartily. He was a remarkably handsome man, some years past 40, I should judge, with long black hair, an aquiline nose, broad cheekbones, a sunburnt complexion, and a very bright, keen, dark, and piercing eye. There were but 20,000 of the Choctaws left, he said, and their number was decreasing every day. A few of his brother chiefs had been obliged to become civilized and to make themselves acquainted with what the whites knew, for it was their only chance of existence. But they were not many, and the rest were as they had always been. He dwelt on this, and said several times that unless they tried to assimilate themselves to their conquerors, they must be swept away before the strides of civilized society. When we shook hands at parting, I told him he must come to England, as he longed to see the land so much, that I should hope to see him there one day, and that I could promise him he would be well received and kindly treated. He was evidently pleased by this assurance, though he rejoined with a good-humored smile and an arch shake of his head that the English used to be very fond of the red men when they wanted their help, but had not cared much for them since. He took his leave, as stately and complete a gentleman of nature's making as I ever beheld, and moved among the people in the boat, another kind of being. He sent me a lithographed portrait of himself soon afterwards, very like, though scarcely handsome enough, which I have carefully preserved in memory of our brief acquaintance. So tell us a little bit about his trip here, specifically in Kentucky. What was his experience like, and where did he visit? Well, throughout the American Notes, he talks about visiting unusual places and meeting unusual people, and you get a sense of that in the the chapter on um, 
his travels through Kentucky. And there's a really interesting story about him visiting the Galt House mm-hmm. Hotel. Well, the original Galt House mm-hmm. that was on 2nd and Main Streets. And while he was at the Galt House, Dickens had a legendary confrontation with the hotel's proprietor, Major R.S. Throckmorton. And it actually appeared in newspaper accounts, including the New York Times. Throckmorton was a noted host and proprietor of the Galt House since 1835, and he was known as a master of hospitality throughout the South. And Throckmorton hosted a dinner for Dickens with prominent men from Louisville. And Charles Dickens didn't realize the difference between a proprietor of a great hotel in American and an innkeeper in a provincial English town and was really dismissive to Throckmorton. Needless to say, the dinner became very strained. From the New York Times, 10-1-1879, General Telegraph News. It was in the old Galt House that Charles Dickens narrowly escaped being ejected. I am glad to welcome you, said landlord Throckmorton to the famous novelist. Sir, said Dickens in anger, when I want you, I'll send for you. Be gone. Excitable and easy to anger, Throckmorton seized Dickens and swore he would throw him out. It was only the strongest pleading that prevented the execution of the threat. And after Dickens realized he had offended Throckmorton, he wrote a flattering description of the Galt House in American Notes. There was nothing very interesting in the scenery of this day's journey, which brought us at midnight to Louisville. We slept at the Galt House, a splendid hotel, and were as handsomely lodged as though we were in Paris, rather than hundreds of miles beyond the Alleghenies. Just to kind of make up for his little yes, snafu. <laughs> yes, so it seems like he maybe struck a deal to yeah, write a flattering yeah. review. But in, in American Notes, like, he seems like he, he really just opposed a lot of things about American society. Like, he was really snobbish about yes, some things. Yes, very much. I think he was... He was just really stunned by the the mm. behavior and the table manners yeah. that, that people exhibited. And, and it's reflected in numerous passages yeah. in American Notes. And he has a nephew. He had a nephew yes. here in Kentucky. That was an interesting story that I came across. Mm. He did have a nephew that lived in Kentucky. He was the son of a younger brother of Charles Dickens. And there's a passage from the Paducah Sun newspaper that talks about his nephew who was a railroad conductor. From the Paducah Sun, 222-1897. A nephew of the gifted writer in Kentucky. He is an engineer on the Illinois Central between Fulton and Cairo. Perhaps few people know that a nephew of Charles Dickens, the illustrious novelist who came to America in the 50s, and in his tour did not pass Paducah by, but came here and immortalized her name in history by writing her up in his American notes as the only city he ran across, boasting of a one-story house with a two-story porch, and a two-story house with a one-story porch, is now running on the Illinois Central Railroad as an engineer between Fulton and Cairo. Yet an own nephew of the famous novelist handles the throttle on a big IC locomotive every day and no doubt feels as happy and contented as if he was driving the transcendent pen of his dead relative instead of a 10-wheel locomotive. The nephew is named after the eminent literature, Charles Dickens, and is a son of August N. Dickens, a younger brother of the gifted man who came to America in 1850. Young Dickens, the engineer, resides in LaSalle, Illinois, and is very different about claiming kin. He also encountered a very interesting individual that goes by the name of the Kentucky Giant. Yes, and keeping in with his, with Dickens' habit of, of seeking out unusual places and people, 
he goes on to describe meeting a man named Jim Porter, who was also known as the Kentucky Giant. And Porter is really a legendary figure in Louisville. At the age of 17, he started to grow uh, several inches a month. Um, Over a period of three years, he reached seven foot eight inches. Locals apparently would place bets on how much he would grow in a week. Mm-hmm. He he was somewhat of a of a celebrity. I wonder he, if there's like a medical condition that could explain, <laughs> like you know, there, from the point of view of a, of a 21st yes, century. It was, apparently, it was a glandular condition oh. that caused, and it, there are other examples mm-hmm. of people growing like this. Mm-hmm. But I, I imagine now we have treatments yeah. <laughs> for that, that that help people. The city presenting no objects of sufficient interest to detain us on our way, we resolved to proceed next day by another steamboat, the Fulton, and to join it about noon at a suburb called Portland, where it would be delayed some time in passing through a canal. The interval after breakfast we devoted to riding through the town, which is regular and cheerful, the streets being laid out at right angles and planted with young trees. The buildings are smoky and blackened from the use of bituminous coal, but an Englishman is well used to that appearance and indisposed to quarrel with it. There did not appear to be much business stirring, and some unfinished buildings and improvements seemed to intimate the city had been overbuilt in the ardor of going ahead and was suffering under the reaction consequent upon such feverish forcing of its powers. We found the steamboat in the canal, waiting for the slow process of getting through the lock, and went on board, where we shortly afterwards had a new kind of visitor in the person of a certain Kentucky giant, whose name is Porter, and who is of the moderate height of 7 feet 8 inches in his stockings. The Kentucky giant had a weakness in the region of his knees, and a trustfulness in his long face, which appealed even to 5 feet 9 for encouragement and support. He was only 25 years old, he said, and had grown recently, for it had been found necessary to make an addition to the legs of its inexpressibles. At 15, he was a short boy, and in those days his English father and his Irish mother had rather snubbed him as being too small of stature to sustain the credit of the family. He added that his health had not been good, though it was better now, but short people are not wanting who whisper that he drinks too hard. I understand he drives a hackney coach. Though how he does it, unless he stands on the footboard behind and lies along the roof upon his chest with his chin in the box, it would be difficult to comprehend. He brought his gun with him as a curiosity. Christened the little rifle and displayed outside a shop window, it would make the fortune of any retail business in Holborn. When he had shown himself and talked a little while, he withdrew with his pocket instrument and went bobbing down the cabin among men of six feet high and upwards like a lighthouse walking among lampposts. It should be mentioned, though, that Dickens made another trip to the United States in 1867. He had planned to come earlier, Mm -hmm. but of course the Civil War put put a damper on that. And in his second visit, it went much more smoothly. It it focused more on entertaining large crowds, Mm -hmm. doing readings from his books. He was able to charge admission, and he made a lot of money. So I guess he kind of knew what to expect and how to plan. He kind of made amends with a a preface he included into an 1850 edition of American Notes, Mm -hmm. in which he claims he had always been in favor of the United States and saw many improvements to the country Mm -hmm. since his last visit. Okay. To represent me as viewing it with ill nature, animosity, or partisanship is merely to do a very foolish thing. Thank you so much for visiting us on the podcast, David. We really appreciate it, and we hope to visit us again. Thank you, Miriam. And I want to send a special thank you out to Bill Widener for lending us his voice for reading the passages for this podcast. Thanks so much, Bill. 
Thanks for listening to Tales from the Kentucky Room, a podcast brought to you by the Central Library's Kentucky Room staff at the Lexington Public Library. If you enjoyed listening, please take a minute to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. If you have any questions about local history or genealogy research, you can visit us in the Kentucky Room to use our collection and newspaper microfilm, or you can email us at elibrarian at lexpublib.org. That's elibrarian at le xpublib I'm Miriam, and we'll be back with another trip down Lexington's memory lane.